Welcome to New Cities Sermon Podcast. Join us as we root deep in God's Word, expecting to be encouraged, challenged, and formed to be more like Jesus together. Let's get into the scriptures now. Today we are looking at Matthew 19 verses, it says 1 through 10, I should have put 1 through 12, and we're going to be talking about um, marriage from Jesus' perspective. Now, I'll, I'll warn you, this is a tough passage. This is one of those passages where Jesus says hard things. In particular, he's going to talk about marriage and divorce. And we don't say these things unaware that many of you in this room have gone through divorce. Many of you have been through in marriages that have been very difficult and have had to get Divorce, But let me explain just for a second before I get into the text kind of how I'm approaching this today. Um, Many of you know that I'm part of a martial arts dojo, and when we go to that dojo, we often do sparring, which is you get padded up and you basically punch and kick each other. And so there are times where you'll get like a, a sparring partner and you'll, you won't go full out on each other, but you'll work on your skills and, and how to defend yourself and how to punch and how to kick. And there are occasions where it gets a little heated, like one guy might kick a little bit harder than he should. And then in the heat of the moment, what you do is you're like, well, I'm going to kick a little harder than I should. And all of a sudden, the situation escalates a little bit. Now, whatever happens at the end of that, everybody always hugs. You're usually not mad. But when our sensei sees that there was a kick that was a little bit too hard, that was returned by a punch that was a little bit too hard, by another kick, by another punch, he'll say this, boys, take it down. And everyone hears that and they know, oh, okay, let's just calm down a little bit, all right? Well, the other night I was there, it was a Tuesday night and there was three of us and we had to each spar each other. So number one sparred number two, number two sparred number three, then number three sparred number one. And it was in this moment where I was the odd man out. I was watching the two other guys spar, one who happens to be 6'6", another who's 6'2", and they're much younger, and they're much more spry than I am. And one of them kicked the other one a little bit too hard. And then the other one kicked back a little bit too hard. And all of a sudden, people are moving a little bit quicker, and punches are swinging. And Sensei is on the other side of the dojo. He doesn't see what's going on. And so I do my best to say what I think he'd say at the time that I think he'd say it. And so I'm right there in front of him, and I say, boys, take it down a notch. And you know what they did? Nothing. They took it up a notch. They kept kicking and punching each other. And then Sensei kind of just within a few seconds, he's very attuned to what's happening, he, he comes over and he goes, boys, take it down a notch. And immediately they stopped. And I went to him and I was like, guys, I was like five feet from you. And I said the exact same thing Sensei said to you. And they both looked at me and they go, we didn't hear you. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I get it. He's the guy, I'm not. Uh, but it made me think about tonight. And it made me think about this passage that we're uh, about to get into. I come into this situation knowing that as we talk about relationships and as we talk about divorce and as we talk about sexuality, it's not an easy topic. But my goal is really just to say what Jesus would say when Jesus would say it. Uh, My goal is is not to say something 
that doesn't come from Jesus's heart and doesn't come from Jesus's mouth. Just like in the dojo, I really just want to say exactly what Jesus said. And we know that Jesus at times challenges us. And tonight, he's going to challenge us. So let's open Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. And I'll read the word of God to you. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees approached Jesus to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, the Pharisees asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? Jesus told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Jesus responded, not everyone can accept this saying, but only to those whom it was given, who it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. The word of God. God, we pray that you would be with us in, as we explore your word and that you would shape us and change us and make us love you deeper. Out of this passage, we really get three things about marriage. That marriage was created by God. That marriage is a lifelong commitment. And that marriage reflects God, but God is greater than marriage. In our story, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're trying to test him. They're trying to, to trap him. Verse three says, they asked is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Now, their question comes from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 24.1, Moses commanded the people that if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent, something indecent about her, he may write a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Now, within the Pharisees, there was two ways of thinking about this. One was called the Shammai school, and the Shammai group in the Pharisees said, the indecency means sexual unfaithfulness. That's the only reason that God would permit someone to get a divorce. But there was another way of thinking about it within the group of the Pharisees called the Hillel school. And the Hillels believed that the word indecent kind of meant anything that the husband thought was annoying. There could be any reason that the husband sends his wife away. If he deems that his wife has disrespected him, he can divorce her. If she burns his dinner, 
he can divorce her. If he finds someone that's more beautiful than his wife, he can divorce his current wife and go and marry another. Uh, All he has to do is declare it. All he has to do is declare that he divorces her. So as we talk about our own culture, there's a lot that was similar 2,000 years ago. In our own culture, in 1970, the law began changing in our country to what we call no-fault divorce. And no-fault divorce is very similar to the Hillel school of thinking. But no-fault divorce wasn't just for men, it was for both men and women. And no-fault divorce said you don't have to prove that the other person did something wrong, you can divorce them for any reason. And divorce became very easy after 1970 when California was the first state that adopted no-fault divorce. And since then, our country has viewed marriage very differently. We see that marriage ends based on what we call irreconcilable differences or incompatibility, or if one spouse says, my other spouse isn't available, or if people just seem to grow apart. In our country, legally, those are all reasons why people can get divorced when the divorce law is called no fault. But as Jesus speaks into this situation, and as the Pharisees try to trap him and go, what are the legitimate reasons for divorce? What's interesting is how Jesus responds. Jesus doesn't respond by entering into the debate. Rather, he goes back to God's design. Jesus doesn't talk about how to plan out a divorce. Rather, he talks about God's purpose for marriage. That marriage is designed by God. It's not a piece of paper. It's not a tool that's used to oppress women. Rather, marriage was an institution created by God for human flourishing. In verse 4 and verse 5, It says, haven't you read, Jesus replied. So Jesus is is saying, go back to the Old Testament. Go back to the book of Genesis. Haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, marriage is designed by God to bring two that are different together as one. Both man and woman, both male and female, equally display the glory and brilliance of God. Man by himself does not display the glory of God without woman. And woman by herself does not display the glory of God without man. Both are equally glorious, equally brilliant. They're not an accessory to each other. They need each other. When I was pastoring up in St. Louis, a lot of the people in our church were refugees from other countries. And a young group of men was from a very traditional culture. And in that very traditional culture, they viewed men, they viewed women as an accessory to men. Men are the real glory and brilliance of God, and women are there to serve us. And we read this passage with them from Genesis that Jesus refers to and said, look, uh, men and women are different, but men and women both equally reflect the glory and brilliance of God. They are both made in the image of God. 
And those young men from a traditional culture were dumbfounded. They'd never heard this before. And it completely changed the way that they viewed women. See, men and women are designed by God. They're designed differently, but they're designed to be together. And in their particular culture, those young men, um, they probably overly define the differences between men and women. In our culture, we, we kind of tend to underdefine the differences between men and women. We almost rep- repress the differences between men and women, like they're the same thing. A man can be a woman and a woman can be a man. That's what our culture is saying right now. Tim Keller says, well, maybe what we should do is first start off by just investigating and observing the differences between men and women. Maybe we should just have an open mind to how God has made us differently because God has designed us to be different, but to be in partnership with each other. If you read the first chapter of Genesis, there's all these things that are in partnership. There's the light and there's the dark. There's the sun and there's the moon. There's the evening and there's the morning. There's the land and the sky and then there's the earth and the sea and all these things are different but in partnership with each other. And God, after he creates all of those things, says this is good and this is good and this is good. But it's not until he creates man and woman that he says this is very good. See, Genesis 1 is giving us this picture of things that are different, but things that are in partnership together. In Genesis 1.27, it says, so God created man in his own image. In he created him in the image of God. He created them male and female, just like the sun and the moon, just like the earth and the sky, just like day and night. Male and female are different, but in partnership together for a purpose. The very next verse in the Old Testament, Genesis 1:28, says God blessed them. God blessed Adam and Eve, male and female, And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Theologians call this verse the cultural mandate. It's God's command to expand the borders of Eden. Eden was the garden where God's glory shone through Adam and Eve as they ruled over. But he says, here, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth with God's glory. Well, how were they to do that? By making more image bearers of God, by making more males and females through a sexual relationship that Adam and Eve would have. Through their marriage, they would create more image bearers that would extend the borders of Eden and fill the earth with God's glory, which was people made in the image of God. See, very much in the design For the nature of reality, civilization, God designed civilization to grow through men and women getting married and having kids together. And this is so important to so many of the discussions we're having in our country and in our culture, particularly when it comes to things like heterosexuality and and homosexuality. Now, Here, Jesus is giving us his view on these issues. Um, Jesus is saying that every human being, whether male or female, is created in the image of God. Every human being, 
regardless of sexuality, is made in the image of God. And yet at the same time, Jesus says there is a design for marriage. And it's male and female. It's one man. It's one woman. Now, if you're here tonight, and you're someone who says, I'm a practicing homosexual, I have same-sex attraction, or I'm gay and I'm not sure what to do, I'm so glad that you're here. You were created in the image of God. You deserve dignity and honor and worth. You're not less human. And, And yet at the same time, we have to recognize that what Jesus is saying here is the design for humanity in marriage between a man and a woman And that sexuality is designed to be expressed in that marriage between a man and a woman. See, some people say Jesus never addressed homosexuality. And it's just just not true. He's addressing it right here in this passage by giving us his vision for human flourishing. Jesus is giving us the vision so that we don't have to ask about all the other variations. A couple weeks ago, I bought a car, and I spent a month and a half looking for the particular car I wanted. I looked online. I even went to Orlando to look for a car, and finally, I found a car, and I found the exact car that I wanted. I negotiated the price. I sat down at the counter and said, I am ready. This is the car I want. I test drove it and everything. I was ready to sign, and then the agent said, let me go get the manager. I said, okay. Go get the manager. We'll see what happens. The manager came and sat down next to me, and I said, I want this car. And he said, John, let me ask you a question. Have you ever considered buying a brand new car? And I said, no, I want this car. It's used. It's certified. That's the one I want. I want this car. And he said, have you ever considered leasing a car from us? And he continued to go through all these other variations and options. And I said, look, man, I know what I want. I know the design. I know the vision. It's this. And in the same way, Jesus in this passage is giving us his vision for marriage, his vision for sexuality. And so when people say Jesus doesn't address it, well, Jesus addresses it by telling us what he wants for us. We don't need to ask all the variations and all the different options because we know what he wants. He wants marriage by God's design. Now, there's a lot there. If you're familiar with this discussion, I'm happy to sit down with you and talk about different things in the Bible. If you know the term arsenikoitai, I'm happy to discuss that with you. If you want to talk about Romans 1 and the, the difference between unnatural and natural desires, or you've read Matthew Vine's book, God and the gay Christian, I'm happy to sit down and talk with you about those things. But most of those things ignore what Jesus does here, where he says, let's go back to the beginning for the vision for marriage. It is that man and woman would be one for life. In verse 5 through 6, Jesus says, You can flip the slide forward. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, here's what's so interesting. We've talked about how the sun is in partnership with the moon, but they are different and they do not touch. The day is in partnership with the night, but the day and night do not happen at the same time. 
the land and the sky, they are different things. They interact differently. But here we get to man and woman who are in partnership and we're meant to see that they mesh together in such a way in marriage that you can't tell them apart because they're now one. Jesus says, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined. And that word joined is like a a word for glue. And we're meant to think that he's leaving his father and mother and he's creating a new family. But within that word join, we're also meant to think sex. From the very beginning of the Bible, God is giving us his design that sexuality should be expressed through the creativity, through a man and a woman coming together in the covenant of marriage. Because marriage isn't just designed by God, but rather marriage is designed by God as a lifelong commitment of love. In verse 6, Jesus goes on and says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined, what God has glued together, let no one separate. The vows in our marriage say what? As long as we both shall live, right? Well, marriage is a covenant. It's not a contract. We're very used to contracts in our culture. Contracts are performance-oriented. If I get something from you, I'll give you something from me. But if I don't get from you, I won't give. And contracts actually limit our commitment. A contract looks like this. I'll change me once I see that you're going to change you. That's not marriage. In fact, that's not God. God doesn't operate contractually. God is a God who operates covenantally. And a covenant is 100% in, 100% the time. I will act towards you in love, whether you act towards me in love or not. And what's beautiful about covenant is it's not just marriage. It's the whole Bible that tells the story of a covenantal God. Pete Scazzaro says this, the concept of covenant love is the theme of the whole Bible. Regardless of your performance, regardless of your limited commitment, regardless of the fact that you quit God every few days, let's be honest, God's love endures forever. God's love is so profound, it's so deep that we'll spend eternity trying to grasp it. That is covenant. God is not a contractual God. He is a God who gives his love 100% of the time. And that would help us to think about, because as we talk about love, we think about falling in love rather than acting in love when it comes to relationships. But here we see God who has irreconcilable differences with humanity and yet moves towards us in love. Not just feeling love, but with action. He sends his son to die so that we can reconcile with him. So that we are with him all in forever. And marriage is just a tiny reflection of the covenantal love of God. So let's ask ourselves, Even as we think about marriage and we think about preparing ourselves for marriage, 
Number one, have we prepared ourselves for marriage? Or are we only thinking about falling in love rather than acting in love? Are we only thinking about being swept off our feet? Or are we thinking about committing ourselves to one person for the rest of our life? I think our culture sets us up for poor preparation. Several things I see. One, porn. The images, the literature, the videos we see of other people's body distort for us what love really is. It makes us feel some kind of way, but it does not train us and form us to commit to one person with everything. But even dating, now now I'm, I'm not against dating. Virginia and I dated, but we should enter into that thinking more than just feeling. Dating can be a contractual performance between two people. I'm going to give you something and I expect to get something back for, from you. And I expect you, to make, I expect you to make me feel a certain way. And often we do that in isolation. Like two people date and they never do it in the midst of community. And it can be highly dysfunctional or it can be highly healthy. Not only that, but I mean, when Virginia and I dated, we didn't have um, we didn't have the prevalence of online dating options. So I, I realize it. I'm archaic. I get it. I'm not around now. I'm, I've been married for 15 years, and I understand that online dating presents um, at least options. And I'm not here to say that's a bad thing, but I, I do think that if we're preparing for marriage, we should at least ask, how is online dating forming us? It can be very transactional. It's easy just to swipe someone away and go on to the next person who you think will fit you better. It it can be highly consumeristic. It can be just like another app that you delete when you don't want anymore. Jonathan Grant says, at its most fundamental level, online dating offers a convenient and alluring consumer experience. From the safety of our computers or smartphones, We can observe and choose from a wide variety of compatible options. We even get to make tentative contact and ask questions about each product to find out more before we try it on. There's a temptation of trusting our intimacies to technology. Given that consumerism has so heavily conditioned our approach to life, it is difficult for us to differentiate between people and things or people as things to be consumed. You could say online dating is simply changing people's ideas about whether commitment itself is a life value. Now, again, online dating isn't bad, but I'm asking how is it forming us and preparing us, not for a contract, but for a covenant? We would be be wise. We would do well to go against the grain of our culture and how our culture finds romance. We would do well to spend time with people who are married and have been married for a long time and learn from them. We would do well to go to therapy if we come from a family of divorce and unpack what happened to us so that we don't continue that pattern. We would do well to go slow in relationships, to know that feelings are feelings, but they're just feelings. We would do well to withhold being sexually active with someone until marriage because knowing that sexuality makes it like a glue 
and brings a permanency to it. In fact, that, that's what marriage is. It's, it's a permanent thing. In verse 7 and verse 8, why then, the Pharisees asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? Jesus told them, Moses permitted you. He didn't command you. He permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. It was not like that in the Garden of Eden when God designed marriage. N.T. Wright says it this way. What happened was um, so there was so much divorce that was prevalent in Moses' day that Moses just said, look, we got to make a rule so this stays sane. If you're going to divorce someone, which you shouldn't, if you're going to, you at least need to give them a certificate of divorce so you don't leave that woman hanging. N.T. Wright says it in our modern day, it's kind of like this. It's the difference between going, hey, if you accidentally have an accident in your car, here's what you should do, versus going, let's total our car so we can get a new one. And Jesus says that the issue, the per permissiveness, they were permitted to get a divorce, wasn't a command. It was because they had a problem, which was a hard heart. They were unwilling to be humble. They were unwilling to ask for forgiveness. They were unwilling to give forgiveness. They were unwilling to, to work through differences. Their heart was hard. And so they broke the covenant of marriage without a legitimate reason. We would do good to listen to that warning from Jesus. But Jesus knows that we live in a broken world. A covenant can be broken by a lack of commitment. But Jesus is the one who defines what that means. Jesus gives two reasons. In, in verse 9, Jesus says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, Jesus, hear what he says, I tell you. Uh, again, this is like me saying what Sensei said. I'm just saying what that guy said. Jesus is saying, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus is saying it. It's a hard word, but he does say it. In fact, he says it twice in Matthew 5.32 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says it again. I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife except in a case of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. But there's a second reason that pops up that Jesus permits called willful desertion. Not just sexual unfaithfulness, but someone who is permanently leaving the marriage. Someone who is physically leaving the home and refuses to live with their spouse anymore. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 13 and 15, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you in peace. Now, we're not talking about feeling deserted. We're talking about actual desertion. Someone says, I will no longer live with you. Or through abuse, they force someone out of the house. That's the second reason Jesus gives Paul. Paul will say that he has these reasonings from the Lord, sexual unfaithfulness and willful desertion. So what's, okay, so what do we do with the fact that many of us have divorces? 
Well, we turn back to the scripture. If there's another reason that you've gotten divorced besides adultery and besides willful desertion, here's what Jesus tells Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10 through 11. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord, not I, but Jesus. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Hard words, but these are Jesus's words to us. So the gospel is all about love when love isn't deserved. The gospel is all about forgiveness when forgiveness isn't deserved. The gospel is all about reconciliation when things, when things seem irreconcilable. And Jesus is calling us to show that in our marriages because he's shown it to us. Now, I know some of you would say, okay, pastor, I gotta be honest. I got a divorce and it wasn't for one of those reasons and I already got remarried. What do I do? Well, can, can you go to Jesus and say, listen, I didn't listen and I didn't follow, but I will now. Whatever happened in the last marriage that made it fall apart, I'm gonna commit to now walk with you in a way where we can work together so that this second one won't fall apart. What if your ex-spouse has moved on? What if you've gotten divorced and your ex-spouse has already moved on? and gotten married. Well, the same thing. Come to Jesus. Say, I got, I got divorced for a reason that, that you didn't say, and I need your help. But if your ex-spouse has moved on, they have broken the covenant. If they're sexually active or they've gotten remarried, there's a freedom that you have now to move on. These are hard things because I know sometimes people are stuck in marriages they don't want to be in, or they're stuck in divorces that they don't want to be in. They don't want to reconcile. <laughs> that's exactly the reaction the disciples have. This is tough stuff. In the very next verse, all of a sudden after Jesus has said these things to the disciples, in verse 10, the Pharisees are gone. Like Jesus has dropped this divorce bomb on them and like they're not interested in the conversation anymore. All of a sudden they've just disappeared. But in verse 10, his disciples are there and they say to him, well, if this is really what marriage is, Jesus, maybe it's better that we don't marry. This is tough stuff. This is hard. This is, this is difficult. If there's no escape clause for men, if we don't get this uh, ability to just sort of divorce our wife when we want to, then maybe we shouldn't get married. And Jesus says, well, let me say this. If you're entering into marriage and you already have divorce in mind, maybe you shouldn't get married. If you're entering into a relationship and divorce is always an option for you, maybe you shouldn't get married. In the, verse, in the next verse, Jesus responds and he says, not everyone can accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. He's not saying, well, if you don't like this idea of no divorce, just ignore me. What he is saying is, if you want to get married, then you have to put divorce off the table when you start the marriage. But Jesus is pointing us to something that's greater than marriage. What well, lastly, marriage reflects God, but God is greater than marriage. 
Jesus is calling us in this passage to have a high view of marriage. But even more than that, he's calling us to have a high view of God, God's love for us, and the fact that we get to be part of what God's doing on earth. See, the goal of life isn't a great marriage. A great marriage is a goal, but it's not the goal of life. The goal of life is to know God and know his love and to know the great love that he has for us sinners who have broken his commands, including his commands on marriage, to know his great love through Jesus Christ. See, if there's anyone that gets divorced, it's God. God made man in his own image, and man gave God the middle finger and said, I'm doing it my way. But to know the love of God means that you know God has moved towards us, even though we don't deserve it, that Jesus loved us and died so that we can reconcile to him. And Jesus says this weird thing at the end. He says, this kind of love is so big, it's so consuming, that when it captures your heart, you might not need to get married. In verse 12, our last verse of the text, Jesus says, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. What Jesus is saying is some are born unable to marry, some are made through oppression unable to marry, but there are some people who are so affected by the love of God and it consumes their life in such a way that they go, I don't need to get married. Now that's not saying that you have to feel that way, but there are people that do feel that way. There are people that say, I will wed myself to God forever. See, marriage reflects God, but God is greater than marriage. Marriage is grand, but marriage won't last forever. When Christ returns and we are made new, we will enter into the kingdom of heaven fully and we won't be married to each other, but rather to God. When Christ returns, he will heal all things. The pain of divorce, healed. The loneliness we feel, we will be completely loved, completely accepted, and openly welcomed by God for eternity. And some people are so captured by that now that they say, I'm good. Serving God, that's it for me, man. I'm wed to that. So, some of you are called to singleness in this season. Some of you have to wrestle with the implications of the divorce that you have walked to, through. And some of you are happily married right now. But we would all do well to remind ourselves that marriage reflects God, but God is greater than marriage. And the love he has for us through his son will never run out, will never turn off. He will never give it based on our performance. He is a God of covenant who loves his people forever, no matter how much they fail. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be with us and that your love would permeate us 
Thank you for joining with us as we rooted deep in God's Word. If you found this sermon encouraging, share it with a friend. You can learn more about New City by going to newcityhh.com or checking us out on social media by searching New City HH. We'll see you next week.